If you're an entrepreneurial public servant, this podcast is for you. Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. And today, I'm honored to be interviewing an inspiring and entrepreneurial leader who has served in both the public and private sector. The Honorable David J. Shulkin is the ninth Secretary of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs, having been appointed by by, uh, President Trump. Secretary Shulkin previously served as Undersecretary for Health, having been appointed by President Obama and confirmed twice unanimously by the U.S. Senate. I think important to our audience before I welcome uh, Mr. Secretary to the uh, show, we're in the engineering and construction industry, and and, uh, Dr. Shulkin represented the 21 million American veterans and was responsible for the nation's largest integrated healthcare system with over 1,200 sites of care, serving over 9 million veterans. And just recently, the Asset and Infrastructure Review Commission released their report uh, on, uh, on the VA's recommendations for, um, the recapitalization of that healthcare system. So without further ado, Mr. Secretary, welcome to inspiring people and places. Glad to be with you, BJ. Um, so, um, we could take this conversation in so many different directions, but sir, how we, how we usually start out is just, you know, really, how did you end up, uh, at the VA? as the secretary, go back as far as you, uh, as far as you think is relevant. Uh, I'm inspired by how much you have served our veterans, how much you care about public service. And one of the, the, the goals of our podcast is really to inspire leaders in the private sector to support our public sector partners, but also for our public sector, uh, partners to be able to take risks and to be more entrepreneurial, to make change inside of their, uh, organizations. So uh, as far back as you want to go, where did, where did your desire to serve come from and, and how, did you, how did you land at the VA? Well, BJ, that's an open question, which is dangerous. <laughs> so I'm going to go all the way back to being born in Highland Park, Illinois, on Army base. Um, and my dad was serving in the Army, and that's where I was born. And I grew up in a very patriotic family with a real sense of service and I always uh, have carried that with me Uh, as a medical student and then again as a medical trainee I trained in the VA hospitals and always uh, admired the people that I had a chance to take care of when I was a doctor Um, but then I went into the private sector and probably a couple decades passed when in 2014 I got a call from the White House that corresponded with a national crisis at the time that many people call the wait time crisis, where the allegations were that there were many veterans actually dying because they weren't able to get seen at a VA hospital. And they're coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and couldn't get the help that they needed. And just like every other citizen, I was following this in the papers and online and in on the TV stations. And I thought it was terrible, but what could I do to help? And then I got a call from the White House. And so it was pretty much of a no brainer 
when they asked if I'd be willing to help, I said, of course, I'd be willing to help. I think anybody would be willing to help our veterans. And um, I found my way to Washington in charge of the VA healthcare system with a mandate to fix that wait time crisis. So you say anybody would be willing to help. And I think that that's probably the mindset of a lot of people that are, are doers and fixers. And I read in your, your uh, book, which we'll talk about in our show notes, uh, that your wife referred to you as Mary Poppins popping in and out of uh, situations uh, as a fixer. So I see how it could be attracted, attractive to you. But I think a lot of people look at public service and say, I don't want, I don't want that burden. There's, there's the mission side of it that's compelling, but then there's all of the noise that comes with it. Talk to us about that. Well, BJ, um, I, I do have to say what you just said is consistent with my experience. When I was in the VA, I would get a lot of calls from friends and colleagues who say, who would say that they wanted to come to VA to help. And almost always after they understood the what they'd have to give up in terms of conflicts in their life, what they'd have to give up in terms of salary and benefits. Most people reluctantly ended up backing out of, you know, coming forward. So, so I agree with you. For me, I started like everything else with a blank sheet of paper where I drew a line in the middle and I had the pluses on one side and the negatives on the other. And when I did that exercise, it was filled with negatives and there was only <laughs> one positive on the left. And that was that our veterans deserve a lot better than they're getting right now. And at that point, I just tore the piece of paper up and I said, I'm not going to think about this in a uh, rational sort of what's in my best interest. I'm going to think about it from a sense of duty and that I've been extremely fortunate to be able to grow up in this country, to be able to get the type of education I've gotten, to be able to have had the career that I've had. And this was my time to go back and to give back. And so I never really thought at all about that negative column list after that first time I drew that, that example, that exercise on that piece of paper up. Well, uh, as a veteran, I, I have to thank you for stepping up and stepping into that role. Um, we can we can have you highlight a couple of your accomplishments, and I think that it would be worth that. Uh, but it's it's completely apparent to me, and I know that the credo from the VA uh, comes from Abraham Lincoln's words, to care for him who, who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. And I do think that it's such a compelling mission uh, and you have, I think that you created momentum for change in that organization. Uh, curious, what, what are the moments or what are the milestones that you're proudest of uh, over your tenure? Well, um, I do think that, as I mentioned before, I came in with a very strong mandate, and that was to make sure that our veterans weren't waiting for care. And so that was something that I was able to tell President Obama at the end of 2016 that right before he left office that we had fixed that problem. And the way that I knew that we had fixed that problem is that we had implemented 
same day appointments in every VA medical center and clinic across the country. And that was the only way that I would know that we could ensure our veterans that if they needed to be seen, they would be seen that day. So I think that clearly is at the top of the list. But there were many other things that, frankly, I can't take credit for that really I had the privilege of overseeing that the men and women in the Department of Veteran Affairs really were the ones that that fulfilled their duty and their mission. And they were things like reducing veteran homelessness, uh, giving caregivers additional supports and benefits, um, reducing, if not eliminating, hepatitis C among all veterans in the VA, adding mental health benefits and focusing on the issue that is still a critical issue of suicide among veterans. Um, so modernizing our information technology that serves our veterans and allows our servicemen and women to um, be able to get the care that they deserve. So there are a whole series of things that, that I think that we're all proud of, not, not least of which is restructuring the system so that veterans could access care outside of the VA when they were not able to get the right care inside the VA. Um, you, you hit on suicide and it's, it's pretty near and dear to my heart. My, my class at West Point, we've actually had four classmates uh, commit suicide. And I mean, it's, it's one of those things that we all say, how do we do more? How do we fix this? Um, I, and I know there's no silver bullet, but what, what are your thoughts on how we, how we continue to improve in that mission? It is a stunning figure. 20 veterans a day still take their life through suicide. Um, what we do know is, is that those that we can connect into the VA healthcare system to get the type of care that they need to get the support have a far lower rate of taking their own lives than those that are out in the community where potentially they're not getting any help or support. So in many ways, this is um, about connecting people who are at risk, who, who, are, who need help with the ability to get that help. And that's why as secretary, I made sure that those that did not have, that had an other than honorable discharge, uh, previously they had no access to mental health services. We gave them access to behavioral health. I made sure that everybody transitioning out of the military automatically got access to mental health because it was those gaps in care where people really were out there struggling and not able to get any help that I think puts our veterans at the greatest risk. So we have a lot of work to do, and this is not gonna be, as you said, an easy answer, but I do believe that uh, we've learned about how we can make a big difference, and that's connecting people into an organized system of care like what the VA has. I, I have a two-part question because we, we are mostly speaking with the, the engineering construction and development industry. And you and I spoke briefly uh, at one point uh, about, you know, the 
more effective ways to deliver modernization of our healthcare facilities. And I believe you had an actual project experience, and I want to say it was Omaha, but I may be making that up, uh, where you were able to take a budget for for a healthcare project and and shrink it substantially. Uh, am I recalling that story correctly? Do I have the right city? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you have a good memory, BJ. Um, the example, the first time that we did this was in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and what what this is, is really a private-public partnership. What we've learned is over time, time and time again, that when VA as a federal entity uh, manages its own construction projects, that they tend to be uh, much longer than what was planned and much more costly than what was planned. And that of course delays services to veterans when that happens. When you work in a public-private partnership and you allow the private sector to use their architectural standards, to use their procurement methods, to get a project done on time and within budget, it benefits everybody. So Congress authorized five pilot sites back in 2016 to be able to do these public-private partnerships. One was done in Omaha, Nebraska, where instead of the government spending what was budgeted to be $336 million, we built a magnificent state-of-the-art facility for less than $100 million in a much quicker way than one would have ever imagined. And the second project was begun in Oklahoma City. Now, unfortunately, that was a five-year pilot that ran out of time in 2021, but there are efforts underway in Congress to renew what's called the CHIP-IN Act to allow VA to take advantage of these public-private partnerships, something I strongly support. Um, so uh, along those lines, you know, when you're in a public position and you brought some private sector practices with you, uh, having been in leadership roles, but what guidance would you have for public leaders that are, are trying to navigate and change the status quo of how their organization or their agency does business to, you know, on one hand, you're taking risks in an arena that does not reward risks to the, to the individual. It actually is the opposite. You take risks outside of the status quo and all you're doing is opening yourself up for to be a target uh because if you win the organization wins if you fail everybody comes at you uh, how do you uh, what's your what's your leadership guidance to those public leaders in those positions that are that are really charged with stewardship of the missions and and innovating the agencies well, BJ, first of all, I think, you know, you can hear your experience talking. That's exactly the way that I describe it. When you're in uh, one of the government jobs, you're not rewarded for saving money. You're not rewarded for efficiency. Um, your currency that you essentially bank on is risk adversity that that, you know, you want to make sure you're complying with government rules and regulations and you're doing your job, you're never going to get patted on the back or nobody's going to stand up for you when you step outside the lines. That puts an extra emphasis and importance on the political leadership 
to essentially have what I call courage. And courage means that the way I looked at my job was I served at the pleasure of the president. And that meant that every day may be my last day. So I might as well make a lot of that day. And you might as well make a big difference. Uh, and, you know, when it ends, it ends. But you want to look back and say, I didn't leave anything on the table that I thought would make a difference. And so, so um, the real question that I think a public servant needs to ask themselves, particularly those who are political appointees, is what is what does the status quo look like? Is the status quo a good thing for the people I should be serving, or is that a bad thing for the people I'm serving? And if you believe that your organization needs to change or be modernized or be updated to do a better job, then you have to think about what's the best way to get there. I answered that question in VA in saying that in order to strengthen VA, we needed public-private partnerships and we needed the help of the private sector. And I would very candidly ask for it. I would tell people in public forums what our problems were, what I was working on and what help I needed. And I was amazed at the response, particularly from the private sector who wanted to help. That's great. And I think I think that adds a lot of value to our to our public sector partners. The other thing that I'm always pushing is that we as a private sector, as the engineering agents, as the architectural agents, as the construction agents for these public partners, we have to help them and enable them to take risks and be more innovative. Uh, and that's really our role because we can create reward and we can create those efficiencies and we can cut through some of the red tape um, that that inside the bureaucracy you just cannot do. That's right. And I think just understanding understanding the perspective of the person who's in those government jobs is a big is a big help because a lot of people like to say that government workers don't work hard or that they don't they're lazy and don't care about their job. I found exactly the opposite. These were extremely hardworking, very smart, uh, dedicated people, but they work in the context of a system that doesn't necessarily reward risk. Yeah. Uh, a couple rapid fire questions. I know we're on a on a time hack here, so we want to stay uh, respectful of your time and, and also our commuters time if they're listening to us in the car. Uh, what are you doing now, sir? I still spend a great deal of time working on veterans issues. Um, what I always tell people is, is that you may think that you've left Washington, you may have left your role, but if you care about what you were doing, you, you really never leave. And so uh, all day long, people reach out to me either with specific issues that they need help on or national policy issues. And I still spend a great deal of time. I sit on a number of boards that are nonprofit organizations that focus on helping veterans. And then I work with a number of organizations that are doing what I think mission critical work. For example, one of those organizations is a very large health system that focuses on rural health care. And I got very interested in rural health care when I was at VA because um, mm. So many veterans live in rural areas and my entire career, I worked in cities and I never really thought about how do you deliver care in areas where you don't even have healthcare professionals in some cases. And so 
I've continued to focus a lot of my time on some of these issues that I think are really important to help veterans, to help Americans. Uh, that's great. Uh, and we, we appreciate it. And I've, I've watched the VA take more of a, a creative approach to the rural healthcare, um, up, you know, through leveraging private sector development, uh, dead or alive. If you could hang out with three people for a day, who would they be? Wow. That's a, that's a good question. You know, um, somebody else that, that I know that many of your listeners admire as well. And that's Bob Dole. I had a, chance to really get to know both Elizabeth and Bob Dole and um, the way that he lived his life uh, is absolutely incredible and uh, I wish I had more time with him. I think um, Johnny Isaacson, Johnny Isaacson, again, another person who passed away this year was the head of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. And I had such admiration for his political skills and leadership. And now that he's gone, I still hear his voice in my head giving me advice that at the time I was too stupid to understand how wise it was. But understanding now his perspective on things, I wish I had more time with him as well. So those are veterans, uh, but all had influences on my life. That's great. Now, I know you were born in Chicago, but you've spent plenty of time in Philly. So in the words of Andy Reid, the floor is yours. The time is yours. Uh, anything you want to leave with our with our audience? Well, I think that the people that are listening to this podcast are people that uh, do have that sense of duty and, and are trying to make our government work better. I, I would just say, I have such admiration for our veterans because they did raise their hand and serve. And many gave the ultimate sacrifice, of course. But today there's less than 1% of Americans that serve in the military. And uh, we should all be very grateful to them. Mr. Secretary, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to uh, share some leadership lessons with us. And, and again, I thank you so much for all you did uh, for the VA and for our veterans while in service and continuing to do uh, in your work uh, post your your uh, secretary position. Hey, everybody, if you enjoy this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for a newsletter to find out more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, have a great week and a great weekend.